What's going on, everybody? Uh, today's show is brought to you by FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. If you want to learn more about the systems that I teach uh, for manual therapy or for body control and sport conditioning, you can go ahead and visit FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. There you will find background information uh, as well as upcoming online seminar dates for functional range conditioning, kin stretch, functional range assessment, etc. We are also brought to you, as always, by Westside Barbell. If you visit westsidebarbell.com and you use the promo code DRE10, D-R-E-10, upon checkout, you will receive 10% off of your purchase of uh, products, including their apparel, uh, their educational um, products, um, backpacks, posters, that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, visit westside-barbell.com. Uh, if you don't know Westside Barbell, um, when you hit up that website, you will learn that they are a premier um, location for sports performance and, and, and strength development. Uh, they use a very, very scientific approach. Uh, anyway, go check them out, westside-barbell, sorry, westside-barbell.com. Uh, Today's show is actually a whiteboard that I did back in January of 2020. Uh, The whiteboard episodes are pretty much going to be me uh, just discussing uh, pretty much whatever topic comes to my mind. In this particular uh, episode, I talk a lot on the origins of human movement, um, how human movements are made and, and subsequently how they're controlled. It sounds very technical, but I, pr- I try to do this whiteboard session. I, I don't dive as deep as I do in the seminars, for example. Um, I- I'm kind of keeping it a little lighter, trying to make the concepts more accessible to everyone. So if you're an athlete, uh, if you're someone designing your own training program, you're a trainer, manual therapist, I think that uh, you might get quite a bit out of <clears throat> the episode, uh, no matter what level or uh, area of expertise you're coming at it from. Um, so yeah, without uh, further ado, I suppose I bring you myself. I always tell people that as soon as someone comes through the door, I think fundamentally therapists, trainers, and, and the like are, are, are making a, um, an error. And the error is that there's an assumption that when someone walks through the door, then that person has the same abilities and capacities as everyone else who walks through the door. So, for example, uh, if you happen to own a CrossFit box and, and you know, people come to your, your, your CrossFit class, I can give you 100 people in a room and maybe the wad of the day is snatches. And it seems to me like when you start this wad, what the instructor is saying is that everyone in the room somehow has the prerequisites that are required to do snatches. And not only to do snatches, but to do snatches for time, whereby the motivation of the client is not perfect form, rather it's number of reps uh, that I can do in a certain amount of time. So the problem with that is, is if you ask me how many people, a random group of 100 homo sapiens, how many do I clear to do snatches? And the answer is, if you're one, if, if it's one, it's, you're lucky. Most people don't have the dorsiflexion that's required. Most people don't have the, the spinal uh, coordination that's required. 
A lot of people don't have hips enough to squat, let alone catching something under a bar. Uh, if someone does have ankles, often they have enough ankles to, to, let's say, low bar back squat, but they don't have enough ankle dorsiflexion to high bar back squat. If you bring it into something like a snatch, like an Olympic lift, now the demand on your ankle is enormous. Um, so the idea is, is that people just all have these capacities and then we just run them. We run people doing human type exercises and then when people break themselves, we get confused. And, and one of the major factors uh, as to why this happens is because of this assumption that everyone that walks through the door deserves to do the exercises that are either popular for the day or the most sexy or the most fun. Uh, and that's just not the case. When someone comes in the door, what we're supposed to be doing, uh, in my opinion, is we're supposed to be assessing what their capacities are. What are they capable of? And then once you realize what they're capable of, your programming is really supposed to be, be done within those capacities. It's like saying you don't want someone to do something they can't do. And for sure, you don't want something to do something they can't do under a load. So you take the average person, you say do a full body bodyweight squat, and many people can't do it. And those people are loading the bar on their spine in the gym while doing a movement which clearly their body does not have the coordination or the range of motion to accomplish and then things break and snap and everyone gets confused. Um, so number one, when someone walks through the door, you can't just assume that because they're human that they can do normal human stuff. Realistically, we haven't been subject to normal human stressors for, for a, a very long time now, arguably since the advent of, of human civilization. Okay, so the moral of that story is, is that we have to have some way to assess what people are capable of and then we have to program within those capacities. Now, further than that, if you want someone to have more capacity, you have to also program in their, in their training a way to acquire those capacities. An example would be shoulder flexion. If, if your client shoulder flexes to a point only to have the shoulder flexion be replaced by back extension. In other words, they don't really have shoulder flexion. So in order to get their shoulder above the head, they extend at their back. So they're compensating for a lack of capacity of shoulder flexion by calling upon an area of the body that is not the shoulder to get them the last little bit of range of motion. And the problem with that is, of course, is if you're doing a shoulder exercise, if you're going to load that person with an overhead press, they're going to put their arms over their head, which means they're going to hyperextend at their back, which means the onus of that position is placed on the back, which is not really a shoulder. And when you ask a back to act like a shoulder, bad things happen. So again, people get confused. Why does my back hurt? Um, we're always looking for back reasons. Your core is not strong enough for whatever other nonsensical things we say, when in reality, maybe it's just that you're doing things that you can't do and ergo your compensatory patterns are becoming uh, problematic. So. How do you fix this or rewind this concept? I, I think you have to start with how people learn how to move. And this is what I start with at all my seminars, because if you really don't know how people move, you're going to have a hard time implementing uh, specific sound ideas to get those people to move better. So we have to have this uh, general understanding as to how people move. Now, the first thing I will say is this, this concept that people somehow have movements stored in their brain that are then ready to unleash um, is false. Uh, the idea that, that you have a person in your brain, a, a smaller person that somehow is able to go into your memories and retrieve the squat pattern uh, 
and then execute the squat pattern as if their little person in your brain is running a computer, the problem is, is that we've never found this little person. Uh, we've never found a center of consciousness, so to speak, with consciousness research. Um, so there's no little person and we can't seem to find this program. So if there's no person and there's no memory uh, way to extract this memory and then execute, the question is, how do you squat? A better question is, what is a squat? And to your body, it's, it's not a real thing. A squat is just a word, a mouth noise that we give to a particular way someone moves that we can find how they move. So we say squat like this. So we define what a squat is and then we put it in their head to squat and then they squat. But the squat didn't live in the person's head. Um, the person doesn't have motor programs ready to discharge. And we know that from dynamic systems theory research. And dynamic systems theory is really, if you're gonna learn motor control at any high uh, educational level, nobody talks about motor programs. We talk about dynamic systems theory. We, talked about, we talk about how the way you move is, it, it comes out of movement practice. So you learn to move, you're not given instructions. And when you learn to move, it's like a natural selective process. So let's say that you're, you know, you're born time zero, you have real no memories, you have no idea how to move. You're just given these twitch-like reflexes, flexion twitches, extension twitches, reflexes um, that we call them. So the baby starts to use these reflexes, flexion twitches, extension twitches. It doesn't have a squat inside it, you see. It's just, you just get these very low-level spinal reflex type movements. And based on those type movements, after the, the baby's born, the baby's clearly going to want to acquire things. That's really the, the point of a baby. They, they try to acquire things. They have to acquire food. They have to acquire shelter. They have to acquire uh, love. They have to acquire all of these things. So they start moving around. And when they move, it's really a natural selection process for movement. So as you move, if your movement that you just did was was accomplished a goal or it, it produced a, a good outcome, you will upregulate the way you move. So your nervous system will select for that particular efficient and effective uh, motor discharge, which allows you to move in that certain way. When you try things and it doesn't work, you downregulate those paths. So it's, it's like naturally selecting for the most efficient ways to move. So pen is here, I'm going to grab the pen. I've never done this before. When I go to grab the pen, if I miss the pen, the body starts to downregulate that. It was not effective. When I get the pen, it upregulates that because it was effective. Now, this natural selective process starts at birth. So you might think that you walk because it's somehow programmed in your DNA to walk, but DNA doesn't program movement. DNA programs proteins. Um, so it's not like there's a walking pattern ready to discharge. You have to learn to walk. And the reason why you learn to walk is because with the anatomy that you're given genetically, um, the most efficient way to move with the bipedal posture that we have is to walk and to run. This is why babies don't continue to crawl or continue to butt scoot because it's much more efficient to get up. So I always say that if you take a baby and put them on an island by themselves and somehow they survive this ordeal, you go back 10 years later, you're not going to find a butt scooting baby. You're going to find a baby who eventually figured out, now it's a 10 year old, how to get up and how to walk. 
because that would be the most efficient way for him to acquire or her to acquire food or anything else they need. So there's this constant thing. So now think of it when you're, when you're learning a skill. So I'm teaching someone how to throw a front kick. Never in the history of martial arts that would anybody tell you that if I show you how to throw a front kick once, that you're just going to watch me do it and you're going to know how to throw a front kick. You're going to take in the information with your eyes. You're going to take in the information with your ears. And then you have to take in the information from your body actually trying the front kick. So there's only really three ways to learn this movement. It's information coming in or information coming up. The information coming up is called afference. Afference is the information coming from all of your body's receptors that tell your brain how the movement's going. So if I throw a front kick, you're going to watch me throw the front kick and you're going to try to replicate what I just did. You throw the front kick once, I say, bad job. You didn't pivot your heel. You didn't, uh, you, know, you didn't twist your shoulder forward, whatever I say. Those auditory cues are going to now downregulate the path that you use to throw that terrible front kick. If you throw it again and I say, good job, that was a lot better. You pivoted your foot, etc., etc., I'm, I'm reinforcing the positivity of what you just did. You're going to start to upregulate that particular path. This process goes on and goes on and goes on. And as people get more and more skilled, they select for more and more specific ways to do things. Now you, you start sparring someone, for example. You throw a front kick and you, you kick them in the face and knock them out. Well, that's the ultimate uh, learning thing where your body did the, the task. It got the goal. You felt it happen. You felt how it happened. This gets upregulated. So moral of the story is that movements are learned via a natural selective process, and even more important to remember is the process is ongoing, meaning that you continue to naturally upregulate or downregulate or naturally select for or deter movements based on your activity. If right now you decided to, decided to start playing tennis, you would start selecting for the movement patterns that help you play tennis. It's an ongoing process. Now. The filter that we use to learn how to do this stuff. So I said it's afferents. It's the feedback mechanism from all of your little receptors in your body telling your brain how the movement went. The afferents comes from our tissues. Our tissues create our joints. Our joints are the movable bits in our body. So a joint can be defined as the space in between two bones that allows for relative motion between the two. So it's an opportunity in the tissue for us to move. And we can only move at the, at the spaces. We can move at this space. We can move at this space. We can move at, at all of these other spaces. So the space and the surrounding area of the joint, that's where these mechanoreceptors live as well as in your tissues. But the health of that joint is going to determine how clear the information is being passed into your brain. So if you ask me to perform a task, I'm going to perform the task. If my shoulder joint is healthy, meaning that all of the mechanoreceptors in my shoulder joint are actually functional, the shoulder joint is going to give the brain a very clear message as to what went on during the movement. If you give me someone whose shoulder is in pain, previous history of injury, labral tears, rotator cuff fibrosis, AC joint, whatever the problem is, whenever there's tissue damage, 
the tissue that gets damaged contains mechanoreceptors. These receptors are just in your normal tissue. Now, if you start using these quote-unquote dirty filters to learn movements, so if your shoulder can't move very well and you start moving around, the information your shoulder provides your central nervous system will not be clean information. It will not be accurate information. Why? Because there's dead tissue, scar tissue that's pulling in different directions. It's, it's making the body feel like it's in one position, but it's not in that position. So this information gets fed back, and then you learn sloppy ways to move. So if movement learning is ongoing, and movement learning is dependent on the health of your joints, then it behooves us to make sure that each one of your joints is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. If it's doing what it's supposed to do and you maintain the health of the joints, then you're working with clean and effective filters, meaning your ability to naturally select for movements will be heightened. You'll be able to find more efficient ways to do things. You'll be able to execute strength better uh, and you'll ultimately perform whatever movement you were trying to perform at a higher level because you're now at a higher level of learning than someone beside you who really doesn't have the capacity to move or whose tissues and mechanoreceptors are riddled with connective tissue scarring. I want to talk now a little bit about these joints. So like I said, joint, a joint is a space between bo two bones, allows each bone to move independent of the other one. So if we're talking about, let's say, uh, the glenohumeral joint, we have the glenoid here, we have the scapula there. It would be our AC, spine of the scapula, uh, infraspinatus there. So now we have our head of the humerus here. Okay, so in here we have what we refer to as a ball and socket joint. And for this ball and socket joint to actually work, the ball, the head of the humerus, rotates within the socket. This is what's supposed to be happening in, in the shoulder. If I, for example, bring my shoulder into internal rotation, what's supposed to be happening is my shoulder is supposed to internally rotate relative to my glenoid. And here's the problem. Most clients that come to see you, or patients that come to see you, if you were to check how does my humerus move on the glenoid, what you would notice is the humerus would oftentimes move slightly, then the whole shoulder will lock, and then the entire shoulder moves as one unit. So in other words, you try to internally rotate, it locks, and then you see people pitching forward and hiking forward. So if you show me one person that can do this, and one person that does that, what we're saying is, is that their two bones do not move independent of one another. If you say that two bones are not moving independently, that is to say that you do not really have a joint. So if I can't move this relative to that and I don't have a joint, this brings up a whole slew of other problems that a lot of people seem to ignore. And, and here's the problem. The only way to maintain health in a human articulation is with movement. That's it. If you go into the research, uh, I, I challenge you to find me any scenario where you can convince yourself that not moving a joint is going to lead to improvement or not lead to the deterioration of that joint. We have research on 
post injuries where people stop moving their joints, back pain when people are in bed rest. Time and time again, what we realize is that movement is the thing keeping our joints healthy. Um, and time and time again, I accuse people of not moving enough. Now, you're watching this and you're saying, I move enough. Maybe you get up in the morning and you, you, know, you start flowing around and moving around and you know, trying to unlock the body and you know, soft music in the background, dim lights, the whole thing. Yes, you're increasing your amount of total movement, that's true. But your shoulder joint doesn't give a shit about your wrist movements per se. So in other words, doing a lot of wrist movements is not really going to make my shoulder healthier. It has to be the actual shoulder joint that moves. Why? If you look at a joint, look at the articular cartilage around a joint and ask any trainer or health professional if this articular cartilage has good or bad blood supply. And they will all tell you that articular cartilage has bad blood supply. So the question becomes, if it has bad blood supply and blood carries nutrients, how do these articular surfaces get nutrients? How do, how do they remain healthy? And the answer is physical imbibement of nutrients from its synovial fluid in its surrounding capsule, which necessitates that that joint moves. But I just told you your shoulder doesn't move. Yeah, but I'm doing shoulder exercises. Yeah, but no, you're not. Because shoulder exercises are done when shoulders move. If your shoulder doesn't move and you assign someone a typical shoulder exercise, you can't move where you can't move. And if you can't move the shoulder, then whatever exercise you're doing, you're using something else to do it. Ergo, it's not a shoulder exercise. Ergo, all of the stuff you're doing in the morning when you're you know, flowing around and trying to warm yourself up, you're not actually putting movement information into this joint specifically. So the health and ongoing well-being of your shoulder joint will deteriorate. And we know that is going to happen 100% of the time because of entropy, which is the fact that every biological system is becoming more disorganized in time unless you do something to quell that progress. So if you have a shoulder that resembles this, that hikes forward, that means you have very little independent movement of your shoulder. Maybe you have 25% of the maximum movement your shoulder can output right now, which means you only have access to 25% of your shoulder for movement, which means the amount of movement health you're bringing to the joint can only amount to about 25%. 25% is not enough. You don't get enough movement as it is, let alone in individual joints. And that's the problem, is that people don't understand that when, when a health professional says move more, it's good advice, but it's incomplete advice. What we should be saying is move more in every single one of your joints on a frequent basis because that is exactly how the health of a joint is maintained. And if you have healthy joints, you have clean filters. And if you have clean filters, then the patterns that you derive from moving with those filters are going to be more efficient patterns. They're going to be safer patterns, and you're ultimately going to have more longevity and higher performance.